The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. You know, one of my favorite books is a book entitled Endurance. It's, titled, it's written by Alfred Lansing, and it tells the story of Ernest Shackle, uh, Shackleton. In 1915, he took a voyage to the South Pole, where he planned to cross the continent of Antarctica by foot. However, winter set in early that year, and he got trapped along with his men. And after months encased in ice, the ship eventually was crushed, and it sunk. Shackleton and his 26 other men drifted on sheets of ice for months. Uh, They ate what they could kill. They made do with rotting insufficient clothing. They battled doubt. They battled discouragement. Uh, They they even uh, had bouts of insanity. But incredibly, after more than a year there in the Arctic, all 27 of the crew survived. Years later, they did a discovery and they found that ship. hundred years later, they pulled it up. It was 10,000 feet under the sea and they still could see the word on that ship, endurance, endurance. The ship's name was based on the family's motto uh, by Ernest Shackleton, by endurance, he says, we conquer. And so that became the new battle cry for those men as they were survived from that one very difficult trip. Paul, here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, is challenging and reassuring Timothy, and I believe reassuring us this morning, that we need to be strong. And that's the battle cry. If you'll read along with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, verses 3 to verses 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and verses 7 where we read, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partakers of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you how it's powerful and how it speaks to us even today as uh, we turn to it. It is, is just as real today as when it was written to Timothy in his day. Lord, teach us something this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, being strong means to endure hardship. Ernest Shackleton endured hardship. They didn't know that they would ever see their families again. Fortunately, they were able to. You know, when 2 Timothy was written, there was much persecution of Christians that was going on around the world. It was widespread. In fact, Paul himself was in prison. And because of this, everyone that he knew in chapter 1, verse 15 says, deserted him. They left him alone. They didn't want to become a part of being arrested. That word strong means to be inwardly strengthened. And every one of us as children of God need that strength. That strength from on high, we need to see him. When we're falling away, 
Paul encouraged Timothy, hey, stay strong, stay strong. How do you allow God to strengthen you? I don't know if you uh, were able to see the game a couple weeks ago, but uh, I watched it intently because I certainly wanted, and, and I hope there's no Alabama fans here, and I apologize uh, if you are, but uh, what a great game. It was in Tennessee Stadium, 100,000 plus in the stadium, and man, the crowd was into it because in 15 years, they never beat Alabama. And this particular year, it was going to happen. And I waited to the end. I said, I know what's going to happen. These fans were cheering the players on. They were encouraging them. And that's why I think they even were stronger because of the encouragement from the crowd. And as soon as that game was over, if you watched it, they ran on the field. They were lifting the players up. The quarterback that was the, the hero, they put him up on their shoulders. They were having a wonderful time. You know, as we think about it, when we're doing well, we get the cheers. But if you throw three interceptions, guess what? You get the booze too. And sometimes that happens in the Christian life. We need to listen and be persuaded of God's favor. Listen to him. And don't quit when you're rejected. Because it could happen. Paul's in prison. But does he quit? No, he's still staying strong. And he's giving advice to us today. Hey, I'm in prison. But stay strong. Stay faithful. God is going to help you. God is going to work you through these challenges, these difficulties, and he's going to keep you as you go through. You see, Paul sought to encourage Timothy to continue his work in ministry. He made the illusions of three secular occupations, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. In these metaphors, we find three pictures of faithful service. We can apply to our own life. We can apply to us. We can use these metaphors to strengthen us, to encourage us, to be strong when the battle gets tough, when the battle gets challenging. These lessons that we glean from these pictures is not limited just to those in full-time ministry. It's for all of us. We need to remember that we need to remain faithful like the soldier, like the athlete, like the farmer. No matter what our function as members of the body of Christ, we're encouraged, be strong, stay strong, stay faithful. Uh, These metaphors, what is it meant to endure hardness? Well, the first one that Paul gives us is found in verse number three. In chapter two, he says, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure as a good soldier. You see, a good soldier is well prepared, is well prepared. They're not going to just put anybody out there in the battlefield. They will go through difficult training, testing. I, I, I love picking up and reading books about Navy SEALs. My dad was in the Navy, and so it, it, it sparks my interest. He, he was a chief engineer. And uh, so whenever I find anything, especially the Navy SEALs, because I know what they go through. I know the endurance that they have to have to be a Navy SEAL uh, and to graduate. You know, they have already been selected. They have a big class. I read about a class of 173 that were selected and they were going to go through the difficult training. But you see, the most difficult part of becoming a Navy SEAL is that week they call Hell Week. And that week is terrible. For the next week, they're going to have to be up for five days straight. They only get four and a half hours of sleep. Not a day, the entire five days of that trip. And during that time, uh, they will run over 200 miles. 
And many of those miles, they will have their rubberized boat on top of their head running those 200 miles. It will be so heavy on them, it would grind into their skin, into their hair, and and it was just so difficult. Then about three o'clock in the morning, the instructor would throw them out in the Pacific Ocean there in San Diego, where the temperatures rage between 40, 50 degrees, and three o'clock in the morning, just the air itself is biting. And then they got to go into it and then they have to uh, be able to endure. And the instructor, when he throws them in there, he says, we're not going to leave here until three or four of you quit. Everybody looks at each other. I came to be a Navy SEAL. I'm not going to quit. Well, guess what? There were some Navy SEALs that quit. There were some Navy SEALs that didn't handle handle. They, they quit. Why did they go through such drooling training in the Navy? because they're trying to get them to quit. It's better to quit now before they get on the battlefield, before they get on the front lines. We don't want them wimping out. We want them to stay strong. And so quitting is not an option. In the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian, we're not to quit, we're to stay faithful. And I know the devil would love to put you on the sideline. I know he would love to get you to quit. And you say, well, you know, that's not gonna happen. Well, Peter said that too. But praise the Lord, Peter was able to repent and get back right where he was. But we have to stay focused. We have to stay faithful. Those who are not able to make it through, they know right away they're not prepared. Are we prepared for the battle that's ahead of us? Of that 173 group that was selected as I read that particular passage, of that group, only 13 of the original class made it. 13 out of 173 of that particular group. You see, those that didn't make it, they were to be embarrassed in front of the rest of the crowd to ring the bell three different times. Then they were to take their helmet and lay it down. They were to take their name tag. They were to take their other gear. And it would be kind of like a graveyard around that bell. And it would be a reminder to those other Navy SEALs that are trying to finish the course, that could be me. That could be me. It was a difficult training. Those who make it through, they are well prepared. There's a second thought about uh, a soldier. He is not to be distracted. Look at verse four. No man warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life. Distraction. A soldier in active service does not have a nine to five job. He doesn't even have a 50 to 70 hour week. He's 24 seven. Every single day. I, I, I know some of our high school students, sometimes they don't like maybe the discipline that we sometimes throw. And they say, you know, when I leave here, I'm going to join the army. As though you are. Uh, you don't know what discipline is. And I'm grateful that they are because they really will get the training. But it's not just an easy job. A soldier is not to become entangled in the things that would be a hindrance. Understand Pensacola students, we're in a spiritual war. We need to understand the seriousness of the spiritual war that we're in. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 reminds us to lay aside every weight, our uh, encumbrance or weight that the sin which does so easily beset us. It's sin which entangles us. It causes us to to lose our focus. An ordinary citizen is a free agent. He can do whatever he wants. He can choose where he wants to eat. He can choose the time, uh, days that he wants to come and go. He can be involved in sports. He can be involved in uh, business, politics. He can eat when he wants to. He can sleep when he wants to, but not a soldier. 
He, on the other hand, he cannot entangle himself in the affairs of this world. He can't go up to his commanding officer and say, I'm sorry, sir, I can't take that 10-mile hike tomorrow. I, I have a game I have to go to with my friends. And then I've got some personal calls that I need to make. And tomorrow I have to date, have a date with my wife. And uh, the commanding officer said with a smile, you're in the army now, son. You belong to me. You will be on that hike tomorrow. And you won't be at any games. And when I'm through with you, you're going to get so much dirt in your, every crevice that they only can call you to make a call for help. And you'll stink so bad your wife will not want to go on a date with you. A good soldier understands of distractions. Soldiering is a part of the Christian walk. You are in a war and you need to go through it. The third thing I see about the soldier that we kind of understand is the second part of verse 4. It says in the last part there, he says uh, he, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. God has chosen us. And what are we to do? We are to please him. That's our call. We're to do everything we can in our power. A good soldier dedicates himself to keeping his oath. He is not going to be court-martialed. He wants to please his master. He's genuine. His desire is to please the one who enlisted him. God did so much for us. And in return, he says, love me. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you really want to serve me? Then feed my sheep. Obey me. Honor me. The Christian's deepest desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it hardly as unto the Lord and not unto men. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 31, we read, Whether therefore you eat or you drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Yes, a good soldier is desires to please his master. Then he gives us a second metaphor. The first metaphor is to be a soldier. Then he chooses an athlete. Now, you know, I says, you know, I, I, I've never been uh, in the army or the Navy. My dad was. My sister joined the Marines. And she, she warned me. She says, don't ever join the Marines. She says, it's going to be tough. Well, if I was going to join, it was going to be the Navy because that's where my father was. But I, I didn't get the opportunity. God called me to ministry and I got to do that. But an athlete, I love sports. An athlete is disciplined. And, and there's a couple things here. He's extremely disciplined. And... and, and 1 Timothy 4, 7, it says, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We are to be well disciplined. Folks, there's no shortcuts in being an athlete. Disciplines are doing the things we know we should do, but they are difficult to do. Some of you maybe have read and heard about a, a basketball player that played for LSU, Pistol Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete Maravich was an amazing basketball player. He grew up with a basketball in his bed, and that's all he did was dribble the basketball. He disciplined. His dad was the coach. He was a, taught well. His, his dad was hard on him. He made sure he kept his discipline. He would be in the gym early in the morning shooting hundreds and hundreds of free throws. He was known for his shaggy hair, his floppy socks, and his unparalleled flair for showmanship. Pistol Pete Maravich set basketball records that possibly will never be broken. Most of the world knew Maravich only as a great shooter who had a knack of entertaining people with bouncing the ball between his legs and shooting a 40-shot uh, uh, jump shot. In three seasons at LSU, 1968 to 1970, he averaged 
44.2 points per game. That was even before the three-point was uh, brought into the game. To put it in perspective, the leading scorers today average around 30 points a game. Maravich scored at least 50 points 28 times, 40 points 56 times, all college records. His 3,667 points for his collegiate career record still stands. Why did he accomplish all of that? Because from the day one, he was disciplined. I am going to give it all, and I want to win a championship. That was his heart's desire. He went on. He went on to play with several different NBA teams and became an incredible player, and he was able to achieve and get his goal. But, you know, soon after that, the satisfaction was gone. Is this all there is? Getting a trophy, getting a, a something... He wasn't pleased. He wasn't happy. And he was searching. Just like he thought basketball would bring life, he found out life was empty after he got out of basketball. One night, by his side of his bed, he got on his knees and he asked Jesus Christ to come into his heart. He didn't know at the time that he only had five more years to live. But you know what? He used those next five years amazingly sharing Christ and spreading the word. Heir to the Dream is one of the books he wrote. He was interviewed by Larry King many years ago. And while he was out there to do that interview, he met James Dobson. And James Dobson said, would you like to go play basketball uh, with me? He says, you know, it's been a number of years. He says, but I think I'd like to do that. And he went there early in the morning with James Dobson and a few other people. And he was having the time of his life. James said, are you okay? Yeah, I love, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought me here. He turned his back, James Dobson, and he turned around. His friend, Pistol Pete Maravich, fell to the ground, and he died of a heart attack right there on the court. He had put that book in the mail to go to Larry King so Larry King could read his story, what the gospel meant. You see, those five years he used wisely. He spent his whole life trying to be the best basketball player ever. But when he found Jesus Christ, it changed everything. And he had camps all over. Our, some of our kids from our school would go to Clearwater where he would do his camp and he would teach, you know, rules, basketball and nutrition and the Bible. The Bible was one of the main things that he would enter on. If he would have known that he only had five years, maybe he might not have jumped in, but he jumped in full head. Yes, we understand that being an athlete takes strong and extremely discipline. Then we think about the spiritual blessings. You don't become godly by accident you don't come godly reading God's word is a practice it's something that we have to set ourselves to sometimes we get out of that habit sharing God's words with others praising God rather than complaining maybe we have to get up a little earlier because of our time schedule so we can spend time in the word of God not only are athletes extremely disciplined but there's a second thing I want you to see they're motivated they're motivated for the price Why do athletes work so hard? Why do they uh, do what they do? Because they know going through the training will help them to win a prize, will help them to win it. Uh, I kind of feel bad for Tom Brady now as his team is now finally, you know, I I used to not like him at all because I'm a Miami Dolphin fan and he'd always beat us all the time. Now he's with Tampa, he's on the different division and and I kind of been admiring him and seeing him, but he's went another year and, and now he's struggling. His body is starting to wear down, and it's not like it was. He doesn't have the receivers like he once had, but he still wants the prize. He has been at it and at it. Why? Because he wants to win another one, wants to win another one. As we know that, you know, that's not what it's all about. 
It's not winning a trophy that tarnishes, that becomes corruptible. But it's something that is incorruptible that we will have forever. Athletes are motivated. It says here in verse number five, they're to strive for mastery. Strive lawfully. You have to follow the rules. You have to do it right. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about that in Philippians chapter three, where he says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling. Are you doing that? Are you pressing further? Are you saying, I want to do as much as I possibly can for my Savior? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, a few chapters over in verses 7 and verse 8, Paul's at the end of his life. And he's saying these words before uh, to Timothy, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. He knew that I'm not going to get the reward here, but one day I'll receive it in heaven. But notice who the person is giving to him. It's our Lord. It's the one that took our place. It's the one who became our substitute. The one who offered us uh, forgiveness of sins. Paul was able to say, I am looking forward to that crown. What is he going to do with the crown? He's going to throw it back at the feet of Jesus. What crowns are we going to receive when we get to heaven? Athletes look for it. And then athletes follow the rules. Stick rule followers. Being able to follow rules. Now, I, you know, I know the games that we play. Basketball, if you step out of bounds, it's no good. You know, look, in college, you can have one foot in to catch a pass. In, in pro, you have to have both feet in. And sometimes uh, it doesn't work for us. But the rules are there for a reason. They're, they, they're there to help us to play the game properly. I read, uh, if you don't, you get disqualified. That's what the Greeks would do. When they would have their Olympics, they would have a set of rules. And if they didn't meet them, they were disqualified for the reward. I read about a Cuban-American who on 1980 ran the Boston Marathon. She was initially credited as the first place female competitor, but was later stripped of her title when it was found out that she had not run the entire course. We must follow the rules. Well, what is our rules? God gave it to us right here, our simple rule book. This book guides us. This book encourages us. This book challenges us to live the Christian life. And and the athlete goes by a book. But the believer, as Paul's comparing us to the athlete, must follow this book. And our book is to the Word of God. Who is our coach? Our Heavenly Father. Who is uh, trusting the, uh, the coach? It's this son. And who do we listen to the coach? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us. Lastly, there's a third area that I want to mention that we see here in our chapter. And I'm not as good at this one because I grew up in the city. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm. My uh, wife, uh, she grew up in North Carolina. Her dad was a pastor, but he would have some acreage, some land, and he would always uh, grow some crops and things. And I would admire him. I mean, he would spend hours out there pulling the weeds, getting rid of the pests. A A husbandman or a farmer had a lot of work. They value hard work. Difficult. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, we just heard announcement about some of the many different careers. I didn't hear that there was any openings for a farmer in here. Uh, I don't know how many are are really looking forward to being a farmer. Maybe there's some of you are. Why don't we want to be? It's hard work. And that's why Paul's saying, as a believer, as a Christian, it's not easy. It takes hard work. We must get up early if you're a farmer, you stay up late. You care for the livestock. You care for the agriculture. You you go on. 
I remember my father-in-law would come visit us in, in uh, Miami and he would come in the winter and he would want to get a head start on his, you know, his garden. So he would bring the seedling, seedlings and he had these three or four big boxes uh, of tomatoes and he you know, just pampered those things. And, and he was so happy they were starting to grow. And when he got back up to North Carolina, he'd put them in the ground. And that was his, you know, his love. He wanted to see those seedlings, those, the, those tomato plants to, to come forward. Farmers work hard. They get up early. Christians, as farmers, we get up early to meet God. They prepare the soil. We prepare the soil by being praiseworthy and thankful and, and, and pray to him. We know what it, it takes labor. And as Christian. We labor for the kingdom of God, for his kingdom. And then we work by faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that we run a race. Why? So that we might win. In the Christian race, in the Christian race, all of us know that it can be risky at times. There can be challenges in the races that we run. There aren't any guarantees. There are not any guarantees that we will, will be able to complete and finish as we mentioned yesterday here in Florida, we experienced uh, Ian, uh, the storm. And, you know, there are many people that uh, have orange groves. And, and there are several of the orange groves. Eighty percent of the crop was destroyed because of the floods that came in and just destroyed them. They took years to plant those orange groves. It was risky. Folks, it's not a guarantee that they're going to happen. And they know that. So what are they doing? They're starting over again. They say the risk is worth it. The risk for serving Jesus Christ, Paul says, it's far worth it. Even though I'm in prison and I know that I'm going to get executed in a little bit of time here, Timothy, I would never change it my ways. I would do what I do today to serve him, to honor him. Why would we invest everything in a risking venture? Thinking of our own lives, the product, the spiritual harvest. Telling people that Jesus loves them. Telling people that the Savior wants to come into their lives. You see, the farmer looks at his failed crop as a tangible reminder that the harvest inevitably belongs to the Lord. The farmer has to be faithful to lay the groundwork for the harvest. But the harvest cannot be forced. It can only happen through the Lord's providence, the weather and everything else. Farmers plant, they expect a crop. We plant seed by sharing the word of God. We don't know if it's going to take seed or not. But what are we to do? We're to give out the word of God. We're to depend upon God to help. We're to trust him. We're to pray to him. We're to say, Lord, today, use me. Uh, may I be a blessing to somebody. And we patiently wait for God's timing. That's perseverance. Waiting on the Lord and trusting him. Reap if we faint not. So we see here, uh, enjoy the rewards, joy, uh, the rewards, the, the third thing. The farmer thinks about the harvest every single day. It's a time of the year that they work the hardest because they're ready to produce the harvest. It's the most satisfying. You've made an, another year and you've grown and uh, you prospered because of it. It's financially rewarding, but it's satisfying to the farmer. I remember my father-in-law would show me some of his big cucumbers he'd grown. I mean, they were huge. I remember he'd show me his hot peppers. He says, there's not a hotter pepper than this one right here. And I would look at him and I said, no, and I don't eat peppers. He said, don't try it. I never touched one of his peppers again because it was one of the hottest peppers that I have ever experienced. The harvest for the Christian is at the end of the age. When this life is over. 
Often we will not know what God accomplished through your labors, through our prayers, through our gifts, until we stand before him. And there in heaven, we will meet people who are in heaven because we sowed the seed. Because maybe we prayed for a missionary that gave the gospel out in Africa or some other part of the world. We will enjoy a harvest of eternal joy. Farmers partake. They work hard. And they, want, and they sit back and watch the, their products changing right before their own eyes. And that's what God does for us. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of speaking and getting to uh, know Bobby Richardson, who was the all-star second baseman for the New York Yankees in the 60s. An amazing player. I really liked him. You know, the other players were good players, but I really liked him because he was a believer. He knew Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, when he went into baseball, he was already married. And uh, Bobby Richardson went to training camp and spring training and all those different things. And his roommate was Tony Kubak. Tony Kubak was not a believer or Christian, but he would see his, uh, Bobby's wife always sending these books for, for her husband to read. And Tony would read them. And Tony became a Christian. When he came to visit us in, uh, in Miami uh, and, and speak for us, he gave me a, uh, a picture of him and Tony and autographed and signed in their pinstripes. And I, and I cherish that today. But more what I cherish is the stories he told me of how God used him with the New York Yankees. He quit early. Now, this is when they weren't making the mega bucks that they make today. I can't believe the salaries that baseball players draw. He decided, you know, it's not worth it. I have my family. I want to make sure my children are headed in the right direction because I'd be gone all the time, he would say. And so he could have played a few more years. He could have probably made a little bit more money, but he saw something more important. It was to invest in his children. And he stepped out of baseball. One of his children was a missionary. One of his children was a preacher. One of his children uh, continued to serve the Lord full time. But was more importantly, I, 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 you know, I know he played with Mickey Mantle and I was enjoying hearing stories of Mickey Mantle. You know, we're talking about an athlete. Mickey Mantle could have probably been a far greater baseball player had he been more disciplined. Of course, we know that he had to have a liver transplant because of all the alcohol he drank. We know that he was a, a womanizer. We know all the things that he did. Bobby Richardson was always faithful of giving him the gospel, telling him about Jesus Christ. It seeming like it was going in one ear and out the other and uh, Mickey Mantle just didn't listen. One day in Texas when he was in the hospital and he was on his dying bed, he wasn't going to be around much longer. Bobby Richardson was in Texas and he decided to go visit Mickey Mantle. And while he was there in the hospital, Mickey Mantle turned and he said, Bobby, all those years of you continuing telling me about Jesus, I want you to know it's worked. I opened my heart to Jesus Christ and he, he drilled him. He said, did, and he said, yes, I did. Well, he went home and told his wife, Mrs. Richardson, she did not believe it. She says, there's no way Mickey Mantle opened his heart to Jesus Christ. I'm going down to the hospital and I'm going to find out. And she went there and she went over and over passages of scripture. And Mickey Mantle answered and said, yes, I know I left, messed my life up, but I'm so thankful that Jesus forgave me. She came home and said, Bobby, you're right. Mickey Mantle opened his heart to Christ in the last inning. Folks, God wants us to be used for him. Bobby Richardson was willing to be that person that God would use in his life to help other people. What about you? You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College.
For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.